Welcome to this conversations episode of Ideas for India. I'm Ashwini Kulkarni of Pragati Abhiyan, a CSO based in Nashik, Maharashtra. Today, we are going to speak with Dr. Mihir Shah, who has been the founder member of Samaj Pragati Sahyo and an organization working in the rural areas of Madhya Pradesh. And they have done pioneering work in water-related, water augmentation, water management-related activities. He's been associated with several other organizations and networks across India working on natural resource management. He has been a member of Planning Commission, the erstwhile think tank of Government of India. He is presently faculty at Shivanadar University in a course designed by him. He's been instrumental in getting it on, which is on water policy. Today, we are going to discuss with him the new water policy. A committee was formed in 2019 which was chaired by Dr. Mihir Shah. And hence, we are going to discuss with Dr. Mihir Shah on this new water policy, which has come into the public domain in just last couple of months. So welcome to this episode. And let us understand what exactly are the issues or what are the problems or what is the crisis related to water, be it rural, urban, industrial, agriculture, water quantity, water quality, whatever, what are the crises related to it, which has led to this formation of the committee and what were the contours of this committee's work? Right. Thank you very much, Ashwini. I'm very happy to be here with all of you. I think when we look at the water crisis in India, the first thing we need to understand is that it is a crisis of the paradigm which has governed water in this country. And what do I mean when I say that? The first thing that we took cognizance of as a committee is that water policy in India has essentially been supply-centric. Ever since independence, the entire emphasis has been on increasing water supply and not really looking at the demand side. And if you look at the latest estimates, what we know is that if the current pattern of water demand continues in this country, about half of our national demand for water will remain unmet as soon as the year 2030. So I think we need to make a major shift away from a supply-centric approach towards demand management of water. The second major dominant element of the paradigm that we have had in our country is that it's all about construction, construction of large dams across major river systems. And it's all about extraction, extraction of groundwater from deeper and deeper levels uh, across the length and breadth of India. And what the new water policy is emphasizing is that we need to make a decisive break away from construction and extraction centricity towards management and distribution of water. And I'll try and describe that in a greater detail as we move on. And the third element of the paradigm is that it is about command and control over nature. So right from independence, it's about looking at our relationship with nature and trying to exercise as much command over nature as we can. So we speak of unlimited extraction of groundwater. We talk of twisting and turning rivers as if they were man-made entities. We are talking of interlinking of rivers, building large dams, etc. While the essential lesson, especially today in the 21st century, in the context of the pandemic, is that we need to redefine our relationship with nature. 
unless we weave our interventions into the contours of nature, we are going to make terrible mistakes and we've already made those mistakes. It's still not too late to make a decisive shift away from this paradigm of command and control. So that's on the one side, we have a crisis of the paradigm of water. On the other hand, there is the crisis of the context. What is the context? The context is that India's rivers are drying up. Many of the rivers are facing basin closure, which means you cannot anymore keep constructing large dams on those rivers. Water tables are falling, groundwater quality is deteriorating, and therefore there is a grave water crisis facing the country. And even more importantly, in terms of the context, we have the context of climate change. What does that mean specifically? It means that the past is no longer a reliable indicator of what is to come. So the assumption, as you know, water scientists like to say, the assumption of stationarity is dead. Changing patterns and in intensity of precipitation as also rates of discharge of rivers show that it can no longer be assumed that the water cycle operates within an invariant range of predictability. What does this mean? This means that we need to place far greater emphasis on agility, resilience, and flexibility in water management so that there could be an adequate response to the heightened uncertainty and unpredictability of the future. True. This change in paradigm that we're talking about is, I think, a very bold statement and much required also. Given this, let us first understand the rural water needs, especially related to agriculture, because even today we know that most of the agriculture is of smaller marginal farmers and grain-fed farmers. So we are still very much monsoon dependent as far as agriculture is concerned. And at the same time, we have canal irrigation or dams which are underutilized, and we have a lot of groundwater extraction. If this is the understanding that we have of today's agriculture and its water use, how does the new water policy take this context into its fold and find ways of finding answers in the framework that you just talked about? Right. I think that's the most important uh, question facing India. You know, if we want to solve India's water problem, we have to address what is going on in agriculture. And a unique feature of the new national water policy is that it teases out the interconnections that water policy necessarily has with policies of other sectors. Agriculture is the most important example of this. Because as you said, water intensive crops are being grown even in relatively water short regions of this country. And why is that happening? Because these are the only crops for which farmers are assured a steady market thanks to government procurement operations for wheat and rice and purchase of sugarcane by sugar mills. You know, wheat, rice and sugarcane take up 80% of irrigation in India. And irrigation itself, that is agriculture sector, is taking up about 90% of India's water. So this skewed pattern of demand has aggravated India's water crisis. The single most important step in resolving India's water crisis has to be, according to the new national water policy, crop diversification in line with local 
agroecology without endangering national water security. How this can be done is also being spelt out in the national water policy. What we are saying is that today crop procurement operations are focused only on rice and wheat. We need to diversify the crop procurement portfolio in a carefully calibrated manner to include nutri cereals, you know, the what you used to call millets and coarse cereals in the old language, the government has rightly redesignated them as nutri cereals because they have the highest nutrition quotient. So nutri cereals, pulses and oil seeds of which India has a very rich repository in line with local agroecology must be included in the public procurement operations of the government. And once this happens, then farmers will also have the right structure of incentives to diversify their cropping patterns, to align with this new structure of incentives, which will lead to a huge saving in water. Actually, my colleague Vijay Shankar and I uh, recently authored a paper for the FAO and the Niti IO, where we made detailed calculations for 10 major states of this country, showing how much water can be saved if we indeed were to do this kind of crop diversification. Now, the question that I'm normally asked, the question is, what will we do with all these nutri cereals, pulses, and oil seeds? And the answer is very simple, Ashwini. As you know, India is not just facing a water crisis. As I said, in this national water policy, we are trying to see the links of water with other sectors. The most important sector, other than agriculture, of course, and related to it, is nutrition. So what we can do, if the government procures these nutri-cereals, pulses, and oil seeds, they must be made a mandatory part of the supplementary nutrition under the Integrated Child Development Services, the ICDS Anganwadi Feeding Program, and also under the Midday Meal Scheme, where children are provided uh, meals in their uh, schools, we can include these crops within the menus of these meal programs and in the public distribution system. And, you know, we already see many states moving in this direction. The central government now needs to make a big push in supporting the states to diversify in this direction. And finally, as an agriculture, what we need is to move away from the green revolution paradigm of the high water consuming, high cost and high risk chemical agriculture, which has become unviable for farmers many of whose net incomes have started to turn negative for two reasons. One, the rising input costs, and also because there are diminishing returns to the application of these inputs uh, on farms. So essentially what's happening is it's become an unviable form of livelihood. And if we move more towards nature-based solutions, I think we can get multiple win-wins. We can have higher farmer incomes, uh, improved water levels, improved water quality, better soil health, and of course, better levels of nutrition and well-being among the consumers. There are some islands of hope where we have seen this change coming in. So if and when tomorrow national water policy is taken up and we start planning activities based on your recommendations, then there are already some examples from where we can learn and replicate it. So has national water policy considered these activities that have already happened across India in terms of revival of millets or in terms of how water is being used for other crops? Absolutely, Ashwini. Actually, one of the 
features which I like to highlight about this draft national water policy is that every one of its recommendations is based on proof of concept on the ground, whether done by state governments or by civil society organizations, everything stated in the policy is a proven proof of concept on the ground so that there is nothing which is coming either from just pure theory or from the air or some wishful thinking. A lot of people find these radically new ideas something which is impractical. But as you rightly said, every idea in the policy is based on solid proof of concept which was presented to us when we were drafting the policy by people who have been doing this work on the ground. Yeah. One of the important aspects of uh, when you say we don't want control or we don't want supply based, what we had something like watershed management programs or natural resource management programs, which had a good boost during a particular time, maybe a couple of decades back, and which has waned out over a period of time for whatever reasons. This national water oh. policy provide that push in terms of programs, policies, and required knowledge transfer, which has to go with it to bring natural water, not just water, but natural resource management back on the table in not just water department, but overall. Absolutely. As I was saying, nature-based solutions are at the heart of the new national water policy. And we are saying they can make a huge contribution to climate adaptation and mitigation strategies. If you see the body like the World Economic Forum today is waking up to the fact that nature-based solutions have the potential to create their exact estimate is of $3,565 billion of annual business opportunities and more than 190 million jobs by 2030. So this is the kind of potential that nature-based solutions have. And what we have done in the national water policy is to give examples of that. For example, protection of critically important catchment areas, especially in the mountain and forest regions, and compensation for ecosystem services, especially to vulnerable communities in these regions, is absolutely essential to adapt to climate change and build water resilience in our fragile ecosystems. You know, other ex another example which is neglected are the wetlands. Wetlands actually accommodate the largest carbon stocks among terrestrial ecosystems, storing twice as much carbon as forests. Taking into account that wetlands provide multiple co-benefits. What are those? Flood and drought mitigation, water purification, biodiversity conservation. We say that the protection of wetlands, their restoration and conservation must be given the highest importance in an era of climate change. You are absolutely right when you say that the kind of thrust that was there for watershed programs has been flagging and the national water policy is strongly arguing that we must move within the new framework and understanding that the policy is now advocating and revive all these programs which are meant to leverage the power of nature to solve human problems. Yeah, but then there can be this issue that when we are talking about rural areas, it is easier to talk about natural resource management and these kind of activities. But when it comes to urban areas, one thing that always strikes me is that you see heavy rainfall, you think about Mumbai, Chennai, flooded, it's national, international news. But what exactly is happening is that you have rainfall which is going down the trend directly. 
I mean, we talk about rainfall being stored and conserved only for rural areas. What happens in urban areas? Rainfall goes directly into the drain. So on one hand, we have floods. Uh, on the other hand, we have scarcity of water for urban areas other than the metropolis. And so there are cities which don't have enough water. Uh, more and more urban areas are being formed. So how do we look at uh, water augmentation, water uh, management, water savings in urban areas? When we are saying that we don't want to go into building more and more dams because most of the urban areas are based on dam water supply into their areas. How does national water policy address this? I'm so glad you asked this question because in my own view, in so many respects, India's urban water problems are even harder to tackle than those facing rural India. Rapid urbanization is leading to more informal sourcing of water, mainly through tankers using groundwater. As you said, increasing demands for import of long distance water and encroachment upon urban water bodies. There are massive losses in the distribution system because of leakages and bad management. Only 47% of India's urban households have individual water connections. Urban areas are producing 62,000 million liters of sewage every day. And according to the Central Pollution Control Board, the installed capacity to treat the sewage is only 37%, and actually only 30% of it is being treated. What is worse are conventional sewage treatment plants are terribly expensive, they consume a lot of energy and have a very large carbon footprint and are not effective against the non-point sources of pollution that dominate urban spaces. So to answer your question, the national water policy has outlined nine key strategies for addressing the urban water and wastewater management crisis. First, we are saying demarcation, protection, restoration, and recharge of traditional water bodies, including their functional parts, the drains, the catchments, and the aquifers, must get highest priority. In fact, we are saying that if a city has to get funds for water projects, it must happen only after they have shown that they have protected their own local water bodies and have done all the rooftop water harvesting that they could possibly do. So that use of internal water, so to speak, must get priority number one. Second, you know, you are such an important question. You are saying that normally we think of all this uh, greening and, you know, catchment area treatment actually for rural areas. But the national water policy says that blue-green infrastructure in urban planning has to get highest priority. See, we constantly have this limited imagination where we think of infrastructure only in terms largely of cement, so to speak. But in fact, all our urban areas have a rich repository of blue-green infrastructure, which simply means they have so many water bodies, they have so many green areas, and we have not only not protected them, we have actually slowly decimated them. What that does is that so many water-related ecosystem services, so many ways of improving water quality and flood mitigation are lost. We are recommending specifically curated infrastructure, such as rain gardens, bioswales, 
restored rivers with wet meadows where rivers can meander wetlands constructed for bioremediation urban parks permeable pavements today the leading cities in the world are all sponge cities you go to the cities which we in india tend to admire but we don't learn from them we need to actually look at even our buildings and how they need to be built in accordance with sustainable building codes adopting water management with recycling reuse and closed circuit technologies so this is extremely important talking of the major cities look at the city of new york people think that 21st century technologies all some high tech stuff which we don't understand but actually the city of new york gets its water supply because it has negotiated over years with people living in the catchment areas of new york who are protecting the catchment area so that new york can get clean and green supply of water so again compensation for ecosystem services for people living in the catchment areas of our urban areas is extremely important and then the major point that the national water policy is talking about is that groundwater urban groundwater remains a blind spot in our water planning in uh, cities we have no idea how much water we are taking from groundwater it's largely illegal we have not gone in for the participatory management of urban aquifers so we need to study the aquifers we need to involve citizens so that they can all participate in a large program of participatory aquifer mapping and management in urban areas equally important is adoption of reduce recycle and reuse as the basic mantra of integrated urban water supply and wastewater management all non potable uses of water flushing fire protection vehicle washing landscaping horticulture must mandatorily shift to treated wastewater we are um, saying the efficiency of water using appliances must be increased and water efficient sanitation alternatives must be adopted as per local conditions we are also recommending much more bioremediation technologies in treatment of wastewater because otherwise the mid 20th century outdated very expensive very high energy use technologies are being used there is again as you were saying great proof of concept on the ground people have worked in many cities in india who have built these kind of green solutions which we must adopt and finally what we are saying is the capacities of our urban local bodies they are the ones who hold the key to solving india's urban water problem we have to build their capacities we have to greatly invest in them otherwise we will not be able to solve this very very difficult water problem that is facing urban india yeah this brings to one of the very exciting points that i find in the new uh, national water policy about the importance given to the users like i could be a farmer i could be a, a household uh, i could be a factory owner i'm going to use water but what participation do i have in understanding the rationale in the way i'm using it my management of it my saving what incentives what disincentives do i have in saving it or maintaining the quality of it we have had examples of participatory irrigation management when there are canals we have seen water users associations uh, we have seen um, um, rural as well as urban areas people coming together 
in taking care of their local water bodies and their use of water from wherever it is coming from. Now, for all these collectives to work, we need a good architecture. We need an infrastructure. We need a legal framework within which collectives can operate. Now that users are getting so much of importance in the new national water policy, what kind of architecture can we look forward to which can enable collectives to work as water users groups? Thank you for that, Ashwini, because again, you've gone to the heart of one of the key recommendations of the new national water policy. What we are saying is, if you want to solve a problem, first you need to understand the nature of the resource which you're talking about. And what we are saying is water is a common pool resource. It is a resource which is, which is shared across users. So unless we encourage people to come together, as you said, unless we incentivize them, create the architecture of governance, which makes it possible for people to do that, it's not going to work. And what we are therefore arguing for is to go into the principle of subsidiarity, which means people closest to where the problem is must be the ones who are central to implementing solutions to the problems that we are facing. And as you rightly said, the entire system of governance of water needs to change. And therefore, governance reform in water is the major thrust area of the new national water policy. So what we are saying are various elements. I'll just describe some of the key elements of the governance reform suggested in the national water policy, which will enable the kinds of solutions that are required in water. So the first thing we are saying is water in India has suffered from what I sometimes call hydroschizophrenia. What we have is different parts of government dealing with different parts of the water problem. So surface and groundwater, drinking water and irrigation and water and wastewater have been divided into silos. Unless we bridge these silos, unless we bring them together, we are going to continue to actually aggravate India's water problem. So what typically has happened is that we have had drinking water programs, but the same tube well, which is providing drinking water to a village, is also being used for irrigation. And as you know, irrigation takes up much more water than drinking water. So because drinking water and irrigation have not talked to each other, on the one hand, you're trying to solve the problem. On the other hand, uh, we are aggravating the problem by the way we are moving in silos. Way water and wastewater, if you treat them separately, there's a decline in water quality, is everybody knows. Surface and groundwater, if you continue to extract groundwater without realizing the interconnection of groundwater and river systems of India, our rivers will continue to dry up because rivers in the post-monsoon era in the most monsoon period, get water from the base flows of groundwater. So this is the kind of silos into which we have divided water, which we need to bridge. You see, India has had a central water commission, which was set up in 1945. It has remained unreformed since independence. It continues to work in the same old fashion without realizing that the context of water has changed. The solutions for water have to change. We have to have a more participatory approach to water management. They continue to focus on a centralized command and control mode of functioning. The Central Groundwater Board, on the other hand, set up in 1970, is all in the extraction mode. 
and does not at all understand how we need a participatory groundwater management approach. So what the National Water Policy is suggesting is that we must merge the Central Water Commission and the Central Groundwater Board to form a unified, multidisciplinary, multi-stakeholder National Water Commission. Now, what that will do is you bridge the silos between groundwater and surface water, drinking water and irrigation, and you bring in professionals who represent all the disciplines required in the management of water. Today, you look at any water department in our country, anywhere in the center or in the states, they will only have people either from civil engineering or if there are groundwater departments, they will have from hydrogeology. Some hydrologists will be there. We don't have anybody from water management, social mobilization, agronomy, soil science, hydrometeorology, public health, river ecology, ecological economics. I could just go on. As you know, Ashwini, you have worked on water for so many years without this kind of expertise coming in. We, they, we cannot involve the people. Do you think the engineers of the Central Water Commission even know how to talk to the farmers? We need people like you who have to be part of this national effort at building the participatory processes. As you rightly said, how will the collectives on the ground get that recognition and support and facilitation from government? That is the most important thing. What we are saying is implementation to be done by communities, facilitation to be done by government, civil society, private sector, etc. And in the National Water Commission, we are saying we must have the primary stakeholders of water also sitting across the table. We are saying that the exclusive wisdom on water is not the exclusive preserve of any one sector or section of society. So whether there are farmers, water practitioners, academia, industry, all of them must come together. Respectful partnerships must be built with all of them based on mutual learning. The indigenous knowledge of our people with a long history of water management is an invaluable intellectual resource that should be fully leveraged. And the unique experience and insights of women must also be actively drawn upon. So I think with all of these elements coming together, your dream, a dream of many people like you, who believe in the principle of subsidiarity and participatory solutions could then be possibly realized. <clears throat> Meer, I hope this is not just for water policy, but for other things also, we need this approach. We need this approach of sitting across the table, respecting each other and finding solutions because people who are nearest to the problem probably know a little bit more about it than others. So Absolutely. this kind of coming together, maybe this national water policy will create a template for departments too. I mean, I hope and wish that happens. From what I've read and from what I've experienced, the whole process of forming this national water policy was very democratic. Uh, like you rightly mentioned, the committee has spoken to hundreds of people from experts, professionals, be it engineers, or women who are taking care of their water bodies. So you have had a spectrum of people presenting to the committee about their experiences, which I think have become part of the overall recommendations of this national water policy. Now, this is one challenge that draft is ready and it has been submitted. And now I think the next journey starts. How do we disseminate it? How do we um, plan the 
activities framework based on the uh, recommendations of the policy? How do we see the center and states taking it? How do we see the departments responding to it? What do you see as this taking shape in next couple of months, in next couple of years? How do you see this unfolding in center as well as state departments? No, exactly. Uh, you know, again, this is one of the major lessons that we drew from the experience of the previous national water policies, that there was no dedicated mechanism for their implementation, their monitoring and assessments. And because of that, the national water policies, three of them were drafted before this one, have remained largely on paper and have suffered terrible neglect. So the first thing I just wanted to uh, bring out for the knowledge of everyone uh, listening to us is that we heard and received 124 submissions by experts, academics, practitioners, and stakeholders from all over the country. And this included submissions by governments of 21 states and five union territories and 35 presentations and submissions by departments and ministries of the government of India. And what I must tell you, what I was truly heartened by is that there was a striking consensus in the perspectives and suggestions we received from across the spectrum, from central and state governments to stakeholders outside the government as well. So I think uh, we often tend to highlight the differences among stakeholders about water. But I think what has happened is over the years, everyone is recognizing that we cannot do with business as usual. We need to make a change. So the first thing I think which gives me hope, like you are asking, obviously you are worried about whether this will get implemented. The first thing is I think there is a remarkable consensus. Now, how to take this forward? You know, the Honorable Minister is on record as saying what he wants, and very rightly so, and I strongly support that suggestion, is that we must have multiple consultations. First, the draft policies put in the public domain. We get responses. The committees reconvene to look at the responses. This is a normal process of drafting the national water policy. And we can say, look, uh, in our view, these are the recommendations which should be incorporated in our draft, and we resubmit that draft. After that, the government must convene a large number of consultations with stakeholders involved in different aspects of the water problem. And from those multiple consultations, we get more insight and understanding of how the draft national water policy could be still further modified. The formal process, of course, which I would like everyone to know, is that once this policy is then approved by the government of India, it actually goes to what is called the National Water Resources Council. You know, the National Water Resources Council is a much neglected body, but it is a very important body which is chaired by the prime minister and has all the chief ministers of the states as its members. Okay. What is supposed to happen is that this policy then is discussed by that National Water Resource Council and is finally approved because it's a national water policy. It's not the policy of the government of India. It's not the policy of any state government. It's a genuinely national water policy and therefore has to be ratified by the National Water Resources Council. So what I'm hoping is that we will go through that process. We get a policy. But then what you pointed out, the real work begins after that. And Therefore, what we have suggested in the policy itself, we have actually said there should be a dedicated task group which will oversee and coordinate 
the implementation, monitoring, and assessment of the progress on the national water policy. We are saying that this task group, we are recommended, should be chaired by the CEO of the Niti Ayo. It should have, again, as members, concerned stakeholders from different parts of society, including, very importantly, six states by rotation. So we have six states every two years who are involved in this overseeing the implementation of the policy. And the task group's work is to provide a 10-year action plan, which it develops with the involvement of all these concerned stakeholders. And we have set very specific time limits for the key elements of the recommendations of the national water policy that within certain time frame, each of those recommendations needs to be implemented. So we are trying to make it as actionable as possible. Of course, the proof of the pudding will lie in the implementation of all these recommendations, but at least from our side as a committee, we have tried to take care of all of the kinds of bottlenecks that have arisen in the past, learning from that experience. We have tried to propose a mechanism through which this could actually see the light of day. Yeah, it is so important to see that there have been so good discussions before it was formulated. And you are also planning a lot of discussions after it, before it goes on the ground as a program in whichever form. It won't be one or two programs. There will be, let's say, 10 different, 20 different programs that will come out of this. But it will be formed based on what everybody thinks. So the ownership is with everybody, not just with the committee. I also see that there is a long-term understanding that it's not going to happen in six months or two years. You just mentioned 10 years, which I think makes it probable that this new national water policy will definitely see its life. And the fact that the committee members have seen it on the ground, how things work. And it is not just a committee of academicians or practitioners or bureaucracy, but a mix of all. I think that has also given its weight in terms of it being realistic. Though there is a paradigm shift, though there is something that we see as a very challenging change, uh, it is possible because so many people are on the board. Based on this, how do you see the central government and the state governments reflecting this in the way the departments shape and the way their budgets get shaped and in the way either the earlier programs are changed or a new program is formed, all these things will have to happen. And how do you see that happening in the next couple of months or couple of years? Firstly, you really summarize the, the thinking behind the policy, the process we followed. That was an excellent summary. And as you said, water has been a very contentious issue across center and states. What we have, you know, there's one more idea which I wanted to share with the viewers, which is that the GST Council, for example, has set a very good instance of cooperative federalism, where there have been discussions, there have been disagreements, but somewhere we have a forum, you know, where you can actually argue out positions in a very mutually respectful manner and find solutions. So what we are saying is the following, either we reactivate the National Water Resources Council, which I just mentioned, which is in a way like the same kind of body chaired by the prime minister with the chief ministers on board, we can have that body taking forward the consensus building exercise. Or you actually create a new council based on the uh, commitment to 
uh, ironing out what are the issues that emerge from the national water policy. Because it will be presented to the National Water Resources Council. The council can take that decision that, look, we need a dedicated body, whatever they want to call it, however they want to constitute it. But it commits to actually seeing to it that any kind of disagreement, because we cannot afford this path of judicial action on water. This is creating a mockery of the problem. If disputes keep going to tribunals or the Supreme Court, that's not how we can find solutions. We need actual, practical, doable things on the ground, which cannot be done through courts or the legal mechanism. There has to be constructive dialogue leading to partnerships with the people, and the people have to be party to this dialogue. It can't be only government to government. So yeah. that's why I'm saying we have to recast the National Water Resources Council to also involve the primary stakeholders. And that, we believe, as a committee, can be a way in which what you were saying, how will the programs and policies will take concrete shape? Maybe through these kinds of deliberations, mm. we could find a way forward. Yeah. Right at the beginning, when we started, you did mention the context of climate change. So this national water policy gets this international dimension of the context of climate change and the various treaties that India is party to and also the kind of already the sufferings that we are seeing within India because of weather variability or climate change, whatever could be the reasons. So national water policy has impacted on this point also. I would like to understand and end with this international context of climate change and national water policy. That's absolutely true. You know, look, I always say that, okay, we have these international agreements and we should commit to a green future as inhabitants of this planet. And if the pandemic has taught us anything, it is about the imperative to change our relationship with nature. So it's the coming together of people across the planet, which is extremely important. But as you said, everything that we have talked about today or what we have spoken in the national water policy makes sense in itself. Even if we did not have the international context for India's own future, for India's own people, for its own challenges. We need to make this paradigm shift. And therefore, it's a win-win. By doing this, by working on the national water policy, we will actually be able to meet our international commitments. But what I'm saying is, it's not only for that reason that we should move towards a more resilient future, towards greater sustainability in our development paradigm. We need to do it because this is the only way we can solve our water problem, we can solve our farmers' problem, we can solve our health problem, our nutritional crisis. All of these are interconnected and they depend on this paradigm shift. As you said somewhere in our discussion earlier, it's not only in water, the change has to happen in an integral way across the board in the entire way in which we look at development. The paradigm of development itself needs to change and it must be embedded in a deeply democratic process where the primary stakeholders have a place on the table, their voice is heard, their knowledge is respected, their solutions are put into play at scale on the ground. Then we will certainly be able to find the solutions that we are looking for. Thanks a lot, Mihir. This is the best way to end the discussion because it shows us the thinking and the process required for our future development plans. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for having me today. Thank you.